0: This week on a podcast from beneath, Friday the 13th. They're coming to get you, Barbara. It has been established that workers who have recently died have been returning to life and committing acts of murder. The unburied dead are coming back to life. Eric, how's it going?
1: It is going very well, sir. Thank you for having me back for the like 13th time. Is it something like that? that? 13th, yes.
0: 13th, yeah. We'll go with it. (laughs) Megan, how are you doing?
2: I am doing very, very well. I'm very happy to be here this uh, lovely, lovely evening.
0: Yes, it is. Now, I have to do something first because I let you get by on your first episode without telling us what your favorite horror movie is, and that's what every guest has to answer. And I don't want you to feel pressure to say butterfly kisses. <laughs>
2: um, butterfly kisses is probably one of my favorite found footage. Uh, it's it's up there with, uh, I think that it pairs very well. I think it's necessary to have it paired with a Blair Witch Project because I think it comments so heavily on that. Um, so yeah, I think that those two are up there for found footage horror. And as far as my favorite horror -er, horror uh mm, that's hard i honestly the movie that we're talking about tonight friday the 13th is one of the ones that i love to watch the most um i think that uh this is a very hard question that you've just asked me it turns out i'm gonna go with friday the 13th (laughs) but i will say that i think the exorcist is the best made and most effective horror movie
1: you go i love everything she just said (laughs) yeah it's all
0: great
2: trained me very well
0: (laughs) so it is december of course christmas is coming up so eric what's your favorite christmas themed horror movie
1: christmas themed horror movie that you know i'm I'm gonna i'm gonna tell you the truth i mean like I, i guess I mean Black Christmas the the original is probably my favorite but I feel like in terms of holiday horror Christmas is one that has had a number of films Silent like Deadly Night and you know Christmas Evil but I just don't feel like it's a holiday that works very well for horror films it, I I think if I had to say my favorite bit of Christmas horror ever would absolutely be um, And All Through the House, which was a Tales from the Crypt comic from the early 50s that was then turned into a segment first for the Tales from the Crypt film um, for amicus films in, I want to say 1973 and that particular segment about a woman who kills her husband um, and is trying to dispose of the body while there is a escaped lunatic wearing a Santa Claus costume lurking outside of her house. Um, and that particular segment stars Joan Collins, um, of all people. And then that segment was remade for details from the Crypt TV show pilot episode. That is my favorite bit of Christmas horror.
0: All right. That's uh I wasn't expecting that one, but that's a good one. Megan, have you seen enough Christmas horror movies to pick a a favorite?
2: Don't you think that A Christmas Carol is like the original Christmas horror story? I think that like... The uh ghost of Christmas future is absolutely horrifying in every single version of a Christmas carol.
1: I think that um, is a fantastic answer. The good Especially answer.
2: A Muppet Christmas Carol, oh my God. Um, like that's a really goofy, ridiculous, like children's version. And the uh ghost <laughs> of Christmas future is absolutely dreadful.
0: I was gonna say the ghost of Christmas future on the Mickey Mouse one too. No, I
1: think you guys are all wrong. I think the (laughs) George C. Scott version, um, that not only is the best version of A Christmas Carol, but that ghost of Christmas future is terrifying. Fuck, the ghost of Christmas present, (laughs) Brian Blessed, when he opens up his robe and he reveals the two starving children that have been under his robe, ignorance and want. That's terrifying, yeah. So, Megan, I think you win. Actually, yeah. hey well, about yes. it, what about you, sir? I've got an
0: add a new. I've got to add a new one because I recently came across a new one that I'd never seen, and I thought I'd seen them all. This movie is called Bloodbeat and it takes place, it takes place during Christmas. But here's the storyline: uh, this woman goes to his, <clears throat> her boyfriend's like family's deer camp to go deer hunting, I mm-hmm. guess, for Christmas. And becomes possessed by the ghost of a samurai warrior.
1: Wow. <laughs> and that's like Christmas?
0: It. Well, it takes place during Christmas. They have a oh, Christmas, wait a second. Ha, did they have you a tag Christmas Christ? I did. did you, I did.
1: You, you, I have not gotten to check that out it's yet. It's but...
0: on Shudder. And it is the weirdest
1: movie I think I've ever seen.
2: Yeah, well, I have Shudder. We need to watch that.
1: We do. And you know what? I'm armed with the proper accoutrements, not only for this episode, but to watch that movie. I have. cheese crackers and M&M's for anyone that does not understand that in joke I would recommend that you go back to our cannibal holocaust episode (laughs) which was a damn fine time and make sure that while you're doing that you give that episode of podcast from beneath a five star (laughs) rating leave a review but definitely share on all the social medias yeah. And I do I do just want to point out in, in reference to that Ant Cannibal Holocaust episode we did, which, by the way, was probably my favorite conversation I've ever had about that movie. And mm-hmm. I had it with you fine folks. Um, I know that on your Facebook page you have a loyal listener who had left a comment saying that the episode was not funny enough. Right. I do not know this individual and i'm sure that she is an awesome awesome person so i'm saying this with all due respect have you ever seen cannibal holocaust mm. i think that was about as fucking funny as we could possibly get
0: yeah, oh, i know cannibal well, holocaust. I, I can let you in on that so that person has since seen the movie cool that person was uh mr poe's wife
1: <laughs> <laughs>
2: uh, <laughs>
1: awesome well like yeah. i said all due respect um it's a that's a pretty nasty movie but i would love it if mr poe's wife um let us know her thoughts on the film because i'm very very interested especially if she re-listens to that episode and hears all of the um pseudo-intellectual bullshit that we were spewing all
0: right so megan first question sackhead jason or hockey mask jason
2: um i my vote is sackhead jason uh, or really no jason at all uh but uh i'm a weirdo about that apparently
0: about not about liking
2: i the love one. the first i love the first friday the 13th movie and there's no jason to be seen in that other than as a drowning child uh that's by far my favorite uh i know that most people prefer two and that most people prefer prefer four uh but yeah i'm number one all the way
1: Eric, what about you? Um, I'm actually with Megan in this regard. Uh, I think Sackhead Jason is my favorite Jason. Um, I also am a big fan of the 2009 Marcus Nispel sort of remake of like the first four movies all jammed together. And I thought that um, um, having Jason appear in his uh, Sackhead phase, but sort of, doing it more like bandages. I mean, I thought that was absolutely fantastic. Derek Mears was so good in that role, um, but Zach had Jason all the way. But I too think that Jason works better as, and I'm gonna have to dispute what you said, there is Jason in the first movie, we have that incredible chair jump scene at the very, very end. We
2: okay, can call yeah. it a
1: dream sequence. We can call it an ambiguous. There's sequence. so many
2: questions about that, though, because <laughs> I mean, like he would be dead for like a long time by then. It's 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 real. It's a real strange moment.
1: Okay, well we haven't we haven't gotten there, and yeah, we yeah, should. That's like spoilers. We we have to discuss the timeline, but I think Jason works better as an urban legend as a backstory um, than he does as an in front of the camera killer. If I have to have him, yes, Baghead is my way to do that. But I have also wrestled my entire life with which one do I prefer? One or two, one or two, part one or two. And I come down on part two not only because I think Steve Miner was simply a better filmmaker than Sean Cunningham and had a few more dollars to work with, but basically everything that's great about part one, you kind of get in the first 15 minutes, again, of part two. Part two is like, if if you have to show somebody a Friday the 13th who's never seen a Friday the 13th and you go, all right, I'm gonna show you just one movie that tells you everything you need to know about the series, I think part two is the way to go.
0: All right. So, Megan, this is a, you had never seen him before. You're the you, first time you'd seen him, correct?
2: Uh, the first time that I saw it was about, was it two years ago that we did our Friday the 13th marathon for the first time? It was a
1: year and a half. It was the day I had surgery.
2: Yes, that's actually. right. The day that Eric uh, got his neck cut open was the first time that I ever saw Friday the 13th movie and we popped in one and we went through the whole entire we went through everything
1: and and I just do have to sort of qualify what the lady just said very casually okay I did in (laughs) fact have my throat slit Um, (laughs) I had to have a cervical fusion and for those who don't know what that is they have to go into the neck and um Attach or reattach or reinforce Some weak vertebrae And the way that they go in Is through the throat And then they go around the back And it was a very scary Procedure because they're telling me All sorts of things like you may never speak again We might accidentally fuck up your vocal cords Um, All kinds of things like that And I was very nervous And I said to Megan "All right, you're going to be sort of Nursing me back to health and I'm not going to, I'm literally gonna be wearing a neck brace and I can't get up off the sofa for you know two or three weeks. I want to marathon all of these films that you've never seen, these series that you've never seen. And I feel like we have to start with Friday the 13th, where in the first up close and personal kill in that film, quite apart from the the flashback at the very beginning where we don't actually see any penetration really. Annie, the cook getting her throat slit um, by the side of the road. I was like, that's where we got to start. And it just feels apropos.
0: So Megan, what was your, uh, whenever you found out that Mrs. Voorhees was the killer, was it, was you, were you surprised or did you kind of, did you already know? I mean, just by this, you know, pop culture or whatever.
2: Uh, I did not know about that. And in fact, I think that the entire experience from beginning to end was startling for me because I came into it as someone who'd grown up in the culture of, you know, Scream and slashers were kind of on the decline. But there was this sort of general opinions uh, about them where they were about, you know, half naked girls getting like slaughtered. Um, and so if that is what you think a slasher is, and then you go back in time and you watch the first Friday, the 13th movie, like, yeah, sure. I guess like some of that is in there, but that's not even remotely sort of what they're focused on. So I was completely surprised by the entire movie, like beginning to end, um, number one that there was like no 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 uh, no really obvious Jason in it and then also yeah that the killer is uh, is a woman and that's a complete and total shock because yeah if you're coming at this slasher from someone who grew up primarily in the 90s and didn't actually watch any of these that is not the expected direction whatsoever and so I was very surprised yes
1: And I'm pleased to report that she shrieked during the chair jumper at the end. (laughs) In fact, we did a a rewatch of the series, Those and the Elm Streets, um, earlier this year. And she still jumped.
2: Yes. I'm one of those unfortunate people who, like, uh, uh, the wiring in my brain is such that even if I know that a jump scare is coming, even if I've seen it before, it will still get me like every time it's like an, an automatic response for me. Is so anyway, the, yeah. is it
0: the music staying to get you or the visual
2: Uh, that's a really good question. I'm sure that it's a combination. I can't tell you why this happens. It appears to be an instinctive response on my part. Although we were watching some kind of a scary movie the other day that didn't get me. And I was like, oh, this one must not have done a good job of its (laughs) jump scare. If it's not, if it's not working on me, it must be really bad.
1: It's, but it's, it's so artfully done. I think that even though, you know, they're, Everybody that was associated with that film is very quick to say, yeah, we were ripping off Brian De Palma's Carrie from 1976, which in turn, you could make the argument was ripping off John Borman's Deliverance a few years prior. Um, I still contend that the closing of Friday the 13th is the most effective jump scare that we have ever seen. And there are so many reasons for it. Um, the fact that the film is, that, that first one is so grounded in reality, um, there, there's nothing supernatural about that film. I mean, technically, there's nothing supernatural about any of them until we come to part six and Jason is literally resurrected by a bolt of lightning. But, you know, you you have room to say that, you know, Jason died but didn't die. He's unkillable, unstoppable in the previous installments. But part one, there's nothing supernatural at all about that film. So you are not expecting this reanimated, you know, fishy frog boy to jump out of the water. And it's such the way that the film tricks you into believing it's over. The way that you think the movie is done and we have gone from Harry Manfredini's, I mean, let's face it, you know, he's he's kind of ripping off Bernard Herman's psycho score through the entire film mixed with John Williams' jaw score. And, but at the end there, he is playing this beautiful, beautiful track, which if you pay attention, if you pay very close attention, it is a musical only version of a country song that was written specifically for the song called sail written specifically for the film i should say that's called sail away tiny sparrow and it plays in both sequences at the diner at the beginning when annie the cook shows up and she's looking for directions to camp crystal lake and then again later when steve christie is there in the middle of the night during the rainstorm you hear this song on the radio sail away tiny sparrow And we come to the end of the film and Alice is in the canoe and she wakes up and the police cars have just shown up and this lovely synth heavy instrumental track of Sail Away Tiny Sparrow is playing. And that is the moment where you go, all right, where's my coat? The movie (laughs) is over. Let's get up. Let's leave the theater. And you don't see it coming. It's incredible. And I defy anyone. Yes, there are people who say that the nurse station scene in The Exorcist 3 is the best jump scare. I'm there with you. I think it's fantastic. Other intelligent people will tell you that the jump scare in Butterfly Kisses is terrifying. And I'll give you that as well. But Friday the 13th, mm-hmm. that's that's where it's at. And I think that is the best use of Jason ever.
0: I was I was going to say the, um, that, that's a good jump scare, but The Exorcist 3 is probably my favorite jump scare. Course, and the it's, way, i went into it's links too. about that on that episode but um so so we were talking before about whether that's a dream whether it's
1: oh wait a sec before um, we do, go there you didn't tell us what your jason is hockey mask or sack head
0: i think i like the sack head jason i like that look that uh, especially when especially when it comes off you know what I'm saying? <laughs> that, the
1: Carl Fullerton makeup where he's got yeah. that massive comb over of long illbilly hair. He looks plausible. Yeah. You know yeah. what I mean? He looks like a guy that would live out in the woods.
0: Yeah, that's that that's I think that's my favorite. I know the the hockey mask is iconic, but I I like the sackhead, Jason.
1: But can I just like piss off all of your listeners right go now? Ahead, go ahead. And because I'm very good at that. Um <laughs> it's hockey practically- mask Hockey Mask Jason is fucking stupid, okay? (laughs) It it makes no sense. And it makes no sense in a film series that, let's be honest, is fucking stupid. It does not make sense. It's wonderful. We love it. It's great. I love these movies and I would not change a thing about any of them, but they're fucking stupid. And the filmmakers were making these films, specifically Frank Mancuso, at Paramount, they were making these movies because they cost nothing to make. They had a huge return and they could funnel that movie into their real projects that came out every year. So they were just doing whatever they could to perpetuate these low budget blockbusters. And when it came time to do the, t- the hockey mask, you know, th- that had more to do with the fact that Friday the 13th, part two as much of a success as it was made less money than the first, it was less successful. And so they were looking for a Michael Myers style look, something that could really lean into with marketing and merchandising. Um, Sackhead Jason, I mean, it's kind of a rip on the town that dreaded Sundown, as well as looking like the elephant man, Um, you know, the David Lynch movie, you've got John Merrick with just the one eye hole in that mask. So they wanted to do something that was different. And the script didn't give directions. It simply said that he kills Shelly, the obnoxious dude, and takes the mask that he has. But what is this mask going to be? And no one could figure it out. And just like every great success story, just like the chair jumper at the end of the first movie, Everybody wants to take credit for who came (laughs) up with the hockey mask. The bottom line is, though, it was just random. It was something that would photograph well in 3D. And it was something that allowed you to impose your own thought on what the face behind the mask was thinking, feeling. Look at The Mandalorian. The Mandalorian, for all its deficits in season two, Pedro Pascal's body language in this expressionless mask it's it's like you can see what he's thinking and it's all through body language and the hockey mask is successful in that regard but it's fucking stupid otherwise it's (laughs) dumb there's it's dumb it's just dumb so if you like the hockey mask you are wrong still give a (laughs) five-star review to this episode please
0: yeah because i mean really there's no reason for him to have it i mean because he's not hiding his identity he's not hiding from anybody
1: But it's so iconic at this point that even when Jason dies in the films, even when the mask is destroyed in any number of ways that the mask is destroyed in many of the third acts of these films, nonetheless, he always gets a hockey mask back. And more often than not, That hockey mask that he gets to replace the previous one has, for whatever reason, the same like he, it's got the the axe wound in the head that he got <laughs> yeah. in part 3 or part of the mask is chipped off by the you know propeller at the end in the boat at the end of part 6 it's like the the iconography is always there with the exception of part 5 where you have the you know the blue triangles rather than the red ones yeah. it's I, I don't know why the filmmakers who care so little about the continuity of these films cared enough to ensure that every replacement mask somehow for no good goddamn reason has the same battle scars (laughs) as the previous installments.
0: I don't know. Um, So, well, the question I was trying to get to was, so we couldn't figure out if it was a dream, is it a foreshadowing or whatever, but if you think about, do you really think that Pamela Voorhees was strong enough to throw people through windows in the first movie or do you think that uh, there was someone working with her possibly jason mm,
1: that's a very so good was he
0: really in the first one and was just kind of helping out
2: i i did always assume that pamela Voorhees was doing all of that herself uh she she looks like the kind of lady who would pull it off uh she yeah she looks she looks pretty tough Uh, and just the fact that she's wearing like an Aaron Fisherman sweater. uh, Yeah, I'm immediately like, oh, this lady, she could kick butt.
1: (laughs) Besides the, you know, what is Jason by the time we come to the third act of part one, going into part two, which starts something like three months after the first one? Alice's dream or vision, or whatever it is that that occurs during the final moments, um, we have Jason circa his death in 1957. He's a you know a pre-adolescent child um, who is rotting and covered in seaweed and all that stuff. When we go to Alice's death at the very beginning of part two, that's a full-grown Jason that shows right. up at her house. Um, Because presumably in this new continuity that begins in part two, Jason did not die and in fact aged Um, at that point, what it would be 20, 24 years. So he's a grown up. Um, We could make the argument that Jason was helping Pamela Voorhees because Pamela was... Um, not simply um you know and i and i mean this with absolutely no disrespect to any ladies except for megan um, <laughs> i mean she's it's not that she's the fairer sex it, but rather it's that she is a woman who is approaching her september years or maybe right. even her october years and she's taking down these strapping teenage boys um, and as you said, she's launching bodies through windows. She's setting them up and in these elaborate discovery drop downs and whatnot. How is Steve Christie strung up the way that he is? Um, you could make the argument that Jason was helping, but then that gets into that fucking timeline we keep talking about. If Jason is alive and she knows he's alive, why is she killing anybody? Because technically he didn't die. I
2: Correct. think, I think that. From my perspective I don't try to make sense of that first movie Um, and I like it better when it doesn't make sense because it is a movie and Eric and I have talked about this a lot because he very much of the big three franchises he expected me to like Nightmare on Elm Street the best because I think it's the most structured and the most sort of writerly of you know of Halloween, between Halloween, Friday the 13th and Nightmare on Elm Street. It's definitely the most intellectual, I guess. Uh, But I adore Friday the 13th the most. And I love it the most because it is just pure subconscious. And so things are coming out in this movie that are not intended because no one really cared that much. They weren't trying to make it make sense. They were trying to slap this movie together and get it out as quickly and as cheaply as they could. And they were not giving it that much thought. And that is the absolute beauty of this movie is that that means that what you get at the end is all of this deep, dark, subconscious shit. And it is beautiful and wonderful and amazing. So I do not try to make sense of it. And that's just sort of like my personal preference because I feel like it is not supposed to make sense.
1: I agree. I mean, I think that the, the characters on page are, you know, no pun intended, paper thin. And so you had all of these New York um theater actors these these kids who were realizing that it was their first time in a motion picture and so they really wanted to invest a lot into the characters and um to make their rather inane dialogue weightier as you were saying um you know marcy for example and her dream about the the sky raining blood then of course you know she has to show off and and do her whole um uh, you know, Catherine Hepburn imitation or whatever in the, the the bathroom, uh, very actory, but nonetheless, the point stands to reason that, you know, everyone was giving their dialogue, um, meaning that perhaps Victor Miller did not intend. And so when you get scenes like Alice saying very vaguely to Steve Christie, when he's, you know, putting the moves on her. And again, this is a final girl who we have the suggestion that she didn't just have sex. She had sex with an older man that she should not have had sex with. Um, you know, when she's saying that she has something she has to take care of in cow. Southwest, yeah. right? What, what is that all about? We don't know. It just was probably thrown in there to say, okay, well, we need a reason why it seems like she's trying to, you know, she's thinking about leaving. You know, she doesn't want to stay around at this camp, potentially. We're just going to throw that line in that she has something to take care of. But Adrian King plays it in such a way that it feels like there is meaning. And thus, we speculate and we discuss that. And you ask the screenwriter, Victor Miller's probably going to go, I don't fucking know. It doesn't mean anything. But yeah. we are given reason to talk about it. It's the same thing with Tom Savini deciding that Jason, who was just supposed to be shown in these flashbacks in the original script and shown drowning, that jumper was not even added until later on in production. We were just
2: they supposed needed to- an ending and they didn't know what to do. Uh, to end the movie in a scary way and so they just throw in like this little boy jumping up out of the water at the end Well,
1: the the original ending was that Alice was going to beat the hell out of Mrs. Voorhees and presumably kill her not behead her but presumably kill her and then Alice was going to get in the canoe the same way that we see she goes out she wakes up in the morning it's the same sort of idyllic sequence we think the movie is over And Mrs. Voorhees is like in a tree near the shore and like jumps into the canoe and attacks Alice. And then they were going to have their final scuffle and Mrs. Voorhees was going to die there. And then it was decided, let's kill her before and then have Jason pop out of the water. But the point is that when they did these scenes that were in the script of the little boy drowning that were just supposed to be flashed as Mrs. Voorhees is telling that backstory, it was just a kid drowning. And Savini said, well, let's turn him into, not politically correct now, but the word of the time, a mongoloid. Right. And they made him with this heavily deformed face and misshapen cranium. What was the meaning for it? There was no meaning for it. But suddenly, Jason takes on these aberrant, potentially frightening characteristics, which says more about society's fear Of um, the disabled than it has anything to do with what Jason was originally intended to be. But again, all of this meaning is, the movie is asking you to read things that I would say none of the sequels, except maybe part two, ever invite any sort of deeper analysis of.
2: And this is why I love the first movie so much, because it's just, it, number one, has this sort of naturalism to the way that it is filmed, and a lot of this is because it had, like, basically no budget, and they didn't know what they were doing, and like Eric said, the actors came in, and they kind of filled out these characters and these roles in a way, because they're stage actors, they had done before, they were new to films, they didn't know that typically you get that in a script so they were just doing what they knew to do and you end up with this really incredible weird magical thing that happens with it and so yes i adore this movie
0: were you shocked when kevin bacon showed up in the first one
2: (laughs) uh you know what like i I did, would not have recognized him if his name had not. I think that his name flashed up. And that's when I was like, Kevin Bacon is in this?
1: <laughs> it's funny because if you look at the big three, each original installment features somebody who would go on to some form of superstardom. You know, you, Halloween, you have Jamie Lee Curtis. Friday the 13th, you have Kevin Bacon. And Nightmare on Elm Street, you've got uh, Johnny Depp.
0: Right. But... uh Kevin Bacon had the better death scene.
1: I will agree (laughs) with you on this. Um, And in fact, I don't know. Did you get the, have you gotten the mammoth box set from screen factory? No, I have not. I haven't got that yet. I am so excited. Not only because I have this and because all of these movies have been remastered or most of the movies in the box, the ones that matter the most have been remastered. But since Blu-ray came along, the original film has only been available in the uncut version and the uncut version. Most people are like, oh, that means extra gore. Well, the reason most of it was cut was because it showed the seams of the effects. And of course, now when we watch these movies in high def, uh, those of us who grew up watching them on VHS um, can unfortunately see a lot more of the, the trickery that was right. employed than you could before. The uncut version, though, is only something like, I think it's like 14 seconds longer in total. But, for example, Kevin Bacon's kill, whereas in the original film, we just see him in, you know, profile as the spear tip comes up through his throat. Then in the uncut version, you cut to sort of a, an overhead shot looking down on him as there is another splurt coming out. And it's very clear that his head is protruding, you know, attached to a, a dummy body. Right, And that sucks. And I have hated the uncut version for this. Annie's throat slit goes on for a couple seconds longer, also showing the scenes. The Scream Factory cut, gives you the uncut version but it also restores the theatrical version remastered and i'm so happy because that is the only version i'm going to be watching
0: now if they could just go back and digitally remove the hair from uh Mrs. is hands yes come up over her
2: oh yeah that's like <laughs> they're very clearly was it was it, those were actually tom savini's hands. that
0: was a uh, tasso Tasso, I can't remember. St-
1: Stavrakus, I think. Yeah, it was stuff his like it. yeah, yeah, that was his hands. It was Tasso's hands, but also worse than that, I can actually deal with Mrs. Voorhees having hairy knuckles. <laughs> I feel like that is in keeping with the character. And ever since I read Crystal Lake Memories and got that bit of information, I've been actually really ha- again, it's something that begs you to impose as you're watching the film that she has these masculine hands. It makes sense. If you're going to take something out though, take the toothpicks out of the neck. Oh, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Cause you could see the toothpicks that held the dummy head on, but fuck it. Just the, the movie's a masterpiece. Let's not mess with it. And yeah. we're going to well, start saying we need to take away the piano wires in the exorcist for the levitation scene yeah. and all sorts of stuff.
0: So after, um, I guess after the now, do you think this one was um, successful because of the jump ending, or the jump scare at the end? You think it would have been as effective movie if it didn't have that?
2: I think that that's definitely a big part of it, and again, I think a lot of it is because. This movie is so bare bones in so many ways, and yet it gives you just enough to sort of fill in gaps and write your own stories about it, that I think that that at least is part of the reason why it works. Like for example, you can you can really speculate is, it does Mrs. Voorhees like have some guilt over the death of her son? Because he's potentially, like, you know, just because of this sort of accident, he's potentially a special needs child. She's, like, it seems like a single mom working as a cook at a camp. And she's probably not watching him either if he drowns. Like, how much of this murdering of the camp counselors is also, like, her own guilt for what happened to him. So this movie because of this sort of they, they didn't try and do too much they didn't over explain they just kind of threw things down and so it, it parts of it are well made enough that it just sort of gives you the freedom to 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 think about it and try and figure out like oh what are all these like nuances of what's happening here so I think yeah the jump scare is part of it but I think also there's this sort of like strange strange darkness to it and I think that especially because it's taking place out in the woods it's tapping into a different set of fears than like Halloween is um so it's definitely it was a Halloween ripoff but it's it's taking everyone into a whole new setting you're going into the woods where it's just the kids and there's no adult help anywhere to be found and that's a totally different context that they're sort of like tapping into there and so I think that that also has a lot to do with it it's just these strange like circumstances and accidents and it's a lot like Star Wars I think in in the way that it's a whole group of people who kind of came together and shaped this movie into what it was and it works because of you know all of these various inputs that happened
0: See, I just think with that, with that that jump ending or jump scare ending, when it came out back then, if you wanted to see it again or wanted to show somebody, you had to go back to the theater. There wasn't any hey, let me rewind the tape and show you this. So I think that that may have been a helped it with success as far as like everybody going to see it multiple times.
1: I agree with you. I think that, I mean, it's it's fun for us all now. And I agree with everything Megan just said. I, I think that it's a movie that is about, um, it, it, is, it is a Halloween ripoff, but it's also a deliverance ripoff. It's about our fear of nature, our fear of um, you know, going into a more primal environment where there is not help and there is not technology. Um, and you're sort of left to fend for yourself, and that anybody out there that could be stalking you or attacking you or, or sodomizing you in the case of Deliverance, you know, you must in a way become primitive and primal in order to fight back. And I think that everything that she's saying about the film dealing with a lot of those themes and that it gives it. Um, a, a, a frightening Isolationist Sort of vibe is Absolutely correct but Let's face it the target audience was Walking out of there talking about that fucking chair Jumper yeah. <laughs> and how loud they shrieked And it's no surprise That every film after That tried to replicate The ending and failed Failed Over and over again every film even part Two my favorite of the series Failed
0: oh, to yeah. do that yeah. Okay. Well, I got one. I got one more thing to bring up before we move on to the second one, and <clears throat> it's something that Megan said, where maybe the mom feels guilty because she was wasn't watching either. Um, and I know there's some theories out there, but where was the father?
1: Are we are we digging into the sequels? Or are we just looking at what's in part one?
0: Uh, we're, we're, we'll probably go ahead and touch on some of the sequels.
1: But but in this question right now, we're only looking what is in the, text um, of the yeah, first
0: yeah, film. It, yeah, you can go through the rest if you have to. If <laughs> if you have some information that is tied to those about well, I mean, who the Elias,
1: is. Elias Voorhees was going to be in part six. He was supposed to be paying the, the gravedigger that we meet um to continue to, you know, maintain the upkeep of Jason's grave, and then it was decided you know by tom mclaughlin not to shoot that um there were other places where elias was going to pop in and he never did we do see in jason goes to hell the final friday that you know the movie that tries to connect jason to like every other horror film we have the necromonicon um necronomicon in uh the Voorhees house Uh, that either Mrs. Voorhees or Mr. Voorhees or whoever was using to reanimate Jason and thus, you know, put him in the Evil Dead universe. Um, But I like to think that that Elias Voorhees just, you know, he was probably a piece of shit who got this woman pregnant during, you know, the late 1940s. And maybe he was married. Maybe he just didn't want to commit, but he took off and left this woman to fend for herself and out pops this baby who is very different. Um, and rather than going to have one of those very primitive back alley abortions that were really a woman's only choice at, during that era, she decided to you know, deal with the public scorn, the public shame, was probably disowned by her family and she worked at least part-time as a, as a summer cook in order to not only provide for her son, but maybe to get him free access um, to this camp so that he could be socialized. He looks so different. This would be a good thing for him. And then he, you know, he dies. And I, I think the dad was probably nowhere to be found in any of this, he probably never even knew the kid's name, probably never even knew that he was a special needs child. My question is, those kids that we see killed during the 1958 flashback in the beginning, are they the counselors who were not paying attention when Jason drowned it? Does Mrs. Voorhees have her revenge at the very beginning of the film? I know I've just got, I went totally off topic. No, that's fine. You guys made me
0: think. That, of yeah, that, I never, but, yeah, I never even thought about that.
1: <laughs> I'm wondering, did what was this a case where she got the two who did it? Cause we see them go upstairs to fuck after singing kumbaya, literally, and um, she kills them. Was that the two or were they like all the other counselors that she kills in 1980 in that they were just, you know, they represented
0: what yeah, happened? Like, yeah, cause I mean, I guess she's, Crazy now, right? Sure. You know, her kid's dead or whatever. So yeah, she probably would get re- you know revenge on the entire, all of the camp counselors, or not just the two that she was you know thought was responsible.
1: But it raises the question: if she, if those two were not the two in question, did they ever get their comeuppance, their just desserts, or did they just scoot on out of New Jersey and never, you know? connect that all the mass murders that happened there afterwards were because um he wanted to get his thing wet
2: is this like a nightmare on elm street situation where the parent is never able to get justice and so they like then take justice into their own hands kind of right. like situation. <laughs> like maybe she couldn't get her hands on the counselors that actually were responsible for jason's death and so she just was killing willy-nilly
0: well i think she was
2: we don't
0: know yeah but um i would assume that those same counselors would have came back the following year that's probably something they do every every summer so yeah i i think maybe they're two in part the one also
1: <laughs> i i think those two were the two
0: it could could have been so what when we move into part two um now Jason Voorhees is all is now the myth right now. He's the scary story that they're telling around the campfire. Where did that come from as far as between the end of the first one
1: and where we are now? They needed a sequel and Mrs. (laughs) Voorhees got her head cut off. (laughs) What were they going to do? And this goes back to your question about would that film has been, been as successful without that chair jumper. no. Because for all the reasons that you and I already said, no, but also the most important one, if there had not been a Jason jump out at the end, there would not have been a Jason to become the killer in part two. Yeah, and, but
0: yeah, yeah so That was my point, like in in the story-wise. So you have Mrs. Voorhees, she gets her head chopped off. And then we see this you know kid, Jason, jump out of the water, which is now a dream. But are you telling me that now just because they're telling stories about Jason that that manifested him that where he comes back and actually kills the final girl from our first movie and is now he you know what I'm saying or was he already did he already make his presence known after the first one but before this one.
1: But that's where it gets so stupid. Right? <laughs> that's where it gets so stupid because here are your options either number one Jason drowned in 1957. He drowned and the murder of his mother reanimated him and he was reanimated or or a ghostly version of him jumps out of the lake and he's back to being, you know 10 to 13, whatever his age was. And that's the frog boy that is going to, you know continue to kill people. How is it that three months later he has now grown to (laughs) man-sized stature? How did he age and how did he age so quickly? if he is a ghost or did, was that a dream when he jumped out at the lake, but maybe he rose out of his grave at the same time. But if he rose out of his grave at the same time, he'd still be a little frog boy. So he wouldn't be in a, an adult body. Or do we go with the mythology that is in the movie, which is he didn't actually drown but everybody thought he drowned. It. He climbed out of the lake where there's a summer camp right there where his mother works, and that his mother keeps coming back to set fires and poison the water. And no matter how mentally disabled he is, there are people everywhere driving around, doing things. I mean, it's isolated, but it's not like we're talking it's you know out in the middle of the desert or something. There are still roads. There are roads, they go places. He could have walked anywhere during the 23 years. Someone would have seen this guy in 23 years, hunters, um, you know, national parks, people, whatever he's living out there in the woods. Somebody would have seen him. And now all of a sudden he has decided because he just happened to see his mom get her head cut off. The mom that. He's presumably, he saw his mom. He didn't go, you know, hey, mom. He, he just like <laughs> sat there, watched her get her head cut off and then just hung out for three months. And then somehow with a bag over his head, managed to ride a bus or, you know, something to go to Alice's house and then call her from a pay phone I mean, how did Jason learn how to use a phone? Right. Where did he get the quarters to call her? How did he do this? If he is indeed alive? I'm I'm speculating here. So, um, no, it makes no sense. But if someone's got a theory, um, make sure you leave a five-star review <laughs> and um, leave a comment.
0: Megan, what do you think?
2: I think that, the, I mean, the only way that you can make any kind of actual sense of it is to go, okay, like, presuming there's no magic involved, which at this point, it's it's not apparent that there would be. And assuming that everything that Ginny says is true, um, you're talking about, yeah, okay, so this, this kid went out into the woods and has been living there ever since. Uh, my assumption would be it's because he'd sort of suffered enough at the hands of people, and he's like, all right, at this point, they've assumed that I'm dead. I'm just done with, like, human beings in general. I'm going to go, like, make it on my own. Uh, Sorry, Mom. And, yeah, just goes out and lives in the woods. And then that sort of makes you think, well, okay, this jump scare at the end, like, presumably Alice like completely and totally traumatized from the events of this evening and out there in the canoe maybe she catches a glimpse of like the living Jason like on shore or something and like then conjures up this image of this boy leaping out of the lake in her mind to kind of like cope with it or like that's the only way that she can interpret what it is that she's seen uh yeah, it's it's really like there are a lot of question marks. And of course, yeah, that question of what happens at the end of the first movie is huge. And it's sort of hard to know because, yeah, Alice has been through an enormous trauma. Like all of her friends got killed in front of her. She discovered all of their bodies, like mangled in these strange and horrible ways and then confronted the murderer who she then also killed so you know what happens at the end of the first movie then sort of like feeds into all the question marks of the second movie and the only you know solid information that we get is this interpretation by the counselor and the best final girl ever jenny um and yes uh in spite of the fact that i love the first movie the most i think that jenny is the best final girl that we ever get uh, in my personal opinion, I'm a fan.
1: <laughs> I'm going to say that first of all, Ginny is the second best final girl we ever get because we all know Nancy Thompson is. There is
2: balls, but Nancy is also unrealistically amaze balls. I mean, she put together all of those traps in that house in like 30 minutes.
1: Um, first of all, we haven't gotten into Nightmare on Elm Street. That's a whole other conversation and the whole question of are, is she even awake at that point because That's it's right, all no. dream logic at that point in the movie. But also Ginny, I will say, being you know my second favorite final girl in all of the franchises um, manages to repeatedly kick Jason in the nuts and hurt him and all that stuff. And then does the same shit as Alice where she knocks him down and then runs away instead of finishing him off. Mm -hmm. And she's escaping from this deranged masked lunatic, but then she sees a mouse and she pisses herself, (laughs) which, you know, brings Jason's wrath upon her. But I digress. Um, I would like to say that for all the shit that I'm saying about how Jason being alive, Makes no sense, I do think that my favorite version of Jason, and honestly, my favorite bit of the the folklore of the films, is the idea that he is somebody that people thought drowned, but he didn't really die, and he's lurking out there in the woods and don't go in the woods because he'll get you. I think that's a wonderful bit of folklore. That we see all over the world, going back to the beginning of time. I mean, it's Grendel essentially. Friday the Thirteenth is Beowulf in so many different ways. With the mom who attacks our hero, and then she gets her head cut off, uh, and then her you know child uh, you know living under the water. I mean, it's all it's the same story as Beowulf in so many respects, but. The thing is that we have these universal stories of the dark stranger that lives in the woods and he, usually he, unless they live in gingerbread houses, will get you if you go in there. And I think that Jason captures that sort of, you know, that summer camp story of Cropsey that so many kids heard about going to sleepaway camps and whatnot all throughout the 70s and 80s. And it's a wonderful bit of folklore. I would just like to know how it is that this deformed child with a gigantic cranium, because we do have to talk about Jason's changing look in these movies, is hairless and has some form of alopecia in the first film. (laughs) The second film, he's got this massive comb over, this long, scraggly bit of hair that only grows on one side of his head, which leads to the question, was Pamela Forhees shaving his head so that he would not look like a 13-year-old with a comb over, which is the only thing that can make him look worse. <laughs> or was the regeneration of his body also partly regenerating his hair follicles and how can I get this too? There you go. <laughs> <laughs> that,
0: would be, that would be a good question to answer. Where can we get the this magical road
1: if you know leave a (laughs) five-star review and a comment so
0: so with part two um this this isn't the point where they are just cashing in on nudity and death scenes right they still kind of have a they were going for a decent storyline right i
1: think i i think it's kind of a a bigger budget remake of the first movie and um but again i think it's a more imaginative one i think that it's a more polished one and you know i mean you can kind of look at it as being the evil dead two of this series it's a it's a much better version of the first one in theory i still think that evil dead one is better than evil dead two but i think friday the 13th two is better than friday the 13th (laughs) one um i think it has some really great kills um you know mark getting the the you know machete in the face and then going backwards down some stairs in a wheelchair is vicious it's vicious it's horrible it's it's awful we don't kill the disabled that way unless we're friday the 13th and right. i salute this film for for going there it's it's got some it's got some great kills it's got likable characters um i think more likable than in the first one and yeah i mean i think it's cynical it's a cynical film that's saying let's basically redo the first one and we need to have a killer so fuck these kids they're not gonna care it no this doesn't make any sense to make jason the killer despite the fact that it makes sean cunningham who you know did the first movie go I i don't want anything to do with this because that's stupid right I wanted to do what John Carpenter wanted to do, which is make this an anthology series where it's every movie takes place on a Friday the 13th and it's about different characters. Uh yeah, it's stupid and it's cynical, but I I think that um for an exploitation piece designed just to squeeze money out of your wallet, I think it's I think it's the best one. Megan, what do you think? I
2: think I mean, this movie is definitely a cash-in on the success of the first one. Um, But that said, we didn't have uh, certain tropes established yet at this point. This movie is still sort of like figuring out what the formula for a Friday the 13th movie is. And so while I don't think it has that sort of like naturalness of the first movie I do think that it is still it has an it has a certain naive naivety uh naivete it's naivete
1: (laughs) yeah.
2: <laughs> naivete. Uh, it still has this naivete to it that I think is what I love about these first two movies in that like you have a bunch of teenagers in the woods and they're relatively likable people and when there is nudity like this was something that I remarked about a lot to Eric the first time that we watched these movies is that this is not nudity the way you so very often see it in modern horror movies it is there but it doesn't feel terribly exploitative like yeah it is the ladies like stripping down but it's being done at moments that you would expect a woman to be taking her clothes off like like
1: like when terry the, the the terry the girl with the the barely there shorts and barely there mickey mouse shirt just decides to take a random skinny dip in the middle of the night well,
2: I mean I think that like I, I like if if I were out there in the middle of the woods and everyone else had like run into town and there were only a few people around I would be tempted especially if the water is warm that sounds kind of nice to me if you think that no one else is around sure why not uh, but
1: mourning the loss of muffin <laughs>
2: She needed to go clear her head a little bit and she had to be nude in order to do so. It just, there's not a lot of it, it, just the way that it's filmed, it feels like things that just happen to be happening and the camera just happens to be there while it is. So, you know, I feel like this movie is not as exploitative in a lot of ways, both of, you know, the nudity and also of the audience the way some of the other ones do. And, you, you can call you know the repetition of certain themes later on and the callbacks to like various popular moments like you know you can call it fan service but a lot of the times what it really is is it's just cashing in and this movie it still hasn't established those tropes that they're going to like come back to and cash in on again and again and again and so yeah it is absolutely it was made in order to capitalize on the success of the first one but it's it still has something to it that feels fresh and fun
1: it it does i mean it is absolutely cynical as i as i said before in that you know aside from it being a remake aside from the fact that having jason as the killer makes no sense i mean look at it it's a 90 minute movie in which we spend the first 15 minutes basically re-watching 15 minutes of the first film um you know, which means they really only needed to make a 75 minute movie at that point. <laughs> but, you know, aside from the fact that the whole notion of, you know, as I was saying, the the dark stranger who lives in the woods and will get you is very effective and something that all children and teenagers can relate to and had a story like that in their area wherever they grew up. You've also got these other great things that tap into that teenage experience, like, you know, you've got the couple who decide that they're going to sneak off to go to this, you know, abandoned camp where all these murders happened. Even if they happened five years earlier, it's still terrifying that what could be lurking in those woods right now is jason an urban legend or is he really out there and so they decide to sneak into a place that is off limits that is completely forbidden and they go there and it's terrifying we go there with them we're afraid of what we're going to see when we get there the great sequence then where after the cop you know hauls them out of there for trespassing He's driving back to town and we see that loping figure for just a second jump across the road into the woods and the the cop runs into the woods chasing him getting deeper and deeper in and we discover the old cabin, the old shack um, and have no idea what's in there, but that's Jason's home. I mean, it's scary. It's great. All these great sequences and that movie that entire movie and everything about it sounds like a campfire story you would hear at a summer camp like the one in that movie. It's great. It's wonderfully meta in that respect.
0: And this movie, if I remember, it's it's pretty well paced too, right?
1: Yeah, it is. Storywise, I
0: mean, it doesn't move awfully fast, but it doesn't have a lot of slow moments in it.
1: I would argue that it's better paced than the first movie. And part of that is that, again, it has the benefit of the first 15 minutes being the last 15 minutes of the first movie, which are go, 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 go. But then for the next 75 minutes, um, I would say it chugs along and there are no dead spots. Whereas the original Friday the 13th, there is a pretty big stretch of dead in the middle of that film. Once once you've lost Kevin Bacon and once, once Marcy is dead, um, there's a lot of Alice walking around with the flashlight making tea figuring out what's <laughs> wrong with the generator calling for bill i mean it's 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 there's a lot of just wandering around in that movie for a while
0: and then just like the first movie this movie also has a uh jump scare at the end
2: yes uh and this one i think I think the end of this movie raises even more question marks than the first movie does.
1: Where's Paul? Where's Paul?
2: What happened (laughs) to Paul? Is, is muffin dead? Is muffin alive? Like, is this like, there's this question of, is this another dream sequence that's happening when, you know, Jason comes jumping through the window at the very end. I think that, you know, I think it's a really cool stunt. I don't think it's as effective, you know, as what happened in the first movie, but it does leave you with the question of like, did she actually kill Jason in the woods? What happens there at the end? Like we don't really, it's not really very clear. Um, Yeah. And then what, what happened to Paul?
1: How did she, how did she survive this? Yeah. How How did Jason survive taking, you know, a machete to the clavicle? Um, but, you know, when we get to part three, which also opens with, you know, the, the the final moments of the previous film, it's interesting to note that, and we'll talk about Jason's look in that movie, because that's a whole series of, of contradictions, but we never see the unmasked Jason sequences at the beginning of part three. He takes the machete to the clavicle He falls down in the hut and then Ginny and Paul stagger off and then we see a new shot bit, you know, a new bit of footage that's been shot for part three where Jason with the machete in his his shoulder clambers away and then we go immediately to what happens in the beginning of part three. So technically you could argue that part three negates the very end of part two. We could still say that maybe he did go and kill Paul or do whatever he did to Paul, but we never see it.
0: Yeah, that's a uh, – I think i would seen something I – know, I know I'm getting, like, technical with the here, but wasn't that something really to do with the actor not showing back – up? or, I mean, I'm saying, like, it's just one of those – you know, the actor didn't show back up, but we'll just leave it in there like it is. And then it, There
2: it, were it, a please. couple of issues with the... There were two people who played Jason in this movie. Um, one of them was a younger stuntman, I think. Correct Steve Eric? Dash. Steve yeah. Dash. Um, and then they also brought in uh, an older and more, ex- more experienced uh, stuntman uh, to play some of the other sequence. So basically one guy the only part that he did basically was the jump through the window um and then for whatever reason they then brought in someone else for the rest of the movie so it's this big convoluted thing everyone has a different story about what happened and why it happened um yeah there are a lot of question marks over like jason and who played him in this movie (laughs) Because I don't think they even credited the, the, the guy who does the jump through the window, right? He's not even credited in the movie. Is this accurate?
1: No, Steve Steve Dash is the one who did the jump. Okay. And he was absolutely credited. And that is, you know, that, that's a big part of the, you know, the source of contention among certain parties is the fact that, you know, he got the credit for being Jason.
2: Okay,
1: um, but you know the, it's 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 a lot of he said she said, and I mean that goes right back then to what happened. Uh, and, and no, I'm sorry, I'm 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 misspeaking. Steve Dash is the one who played Jason most of the time. It was an it was a stunt man named Warrington Gillette who was the younger guy who did the actual jump through the window. Um, but yeah, it's there's a lot of he said she said about which. Jason actor was playing Jason during certain sequences but that's also the case with where's Paul in that you know there were stories that were told for the longest time that John Fury the actor who played that got into some sort of argument with Steve Miner um and didn't come back to film and both John Fury and Steve Miner said no it was nothing like that that was you know there was intended ambiguity at the end of that film. We see dead muffin earlier in the film. So theoretically, if that is dead muffin, there cannot be a muffin at the door. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right? Jason is flesh and blood. He takes a mortal wound. And by the way, none of us have talked about the fact that Ginny's sequence where she puts on the sweater and pretends to be Mrs. Voorhees is fucking aces and is arguably the best sequence apart from the chair jumper in the first movie, the best sequence in this entire franchise. It's (laughs) wonderful. But Jason takes the machete in that scene and is theoretically dead. So there cannot be a Jason who not only shows up at that cabin, but jumps through a window. Right. And, With all that being said, if Jason did jump through the window and had enough strength and was able to, you know, uh, use velocity and physics and mass and shit to throw himself through a window, there's there's no way that Ginny is surviving that. Ginny's dead. Ginny is going to die in that tiny cabin where she and Paul are cornered unless Muffin is also back from the dead and is superhuman and also has Jason's superhuman strength and kills Jason. Um,
2: Yes, the Shih Tzu got got him.
1: Exactly, the Shih Tzu hits the fan. So there is absolutely no way that ending can be literal and have it make any sense at all, especially with missing Paul. Though I do have a theory about Paul when we come now to part three. Mm -hmm. All right.
0: So just as a um, perspective of writers, is that just something you don't worry about plot holes when you, say, hey, hey, I've got this really awesome ending and it's really not going to work to get there, but I'm going to do it anyways, just because I, I really wanna, love the ending.
1: <laughs> I don't want to preempt Megan, but I do want to say that I, I just want to say that everything she said about part one, Everything we talked about with part one, wherein we must impose our own meaning and our own interpretation. For movies that are this stupid, (laughs) they really challenge you to think about them and try to rationalize them to yourself. And I think the end of Friday the 13th is another, or Friday the 13th part two is another example of that, wherein we're sitting here talking about it right now. you know 40 years later we're sitting here talking about what the fuck happened at the end of friday the 13th part two and And i think that's and that's that's, great
0: yeah and it's just a slasher film there's no you're supposed to just enjoy it
2: (laughs) (laughs) It this is the thing that i love about friday the 13th and this is the thing i was not i would never have predicted i would love about friday the 13th it is that it has no pretension uh whatsoever it is doing things uh in order to get them done. And it is not good writing uh, whatsoever. It's not even necessarily good filmmaking to have these things happening that don't make sense. And yet it sets this precedent of, okay, it doesn't make sense from the get-go. From the very top, this is a sort of like dreamlike kind of thing, which means that as the series progresses, they don't have to do all of these weird like rewriting of history tricks that like the Halloween series has to do like Halloween has to do all of these insane tricks within the story itself to try and keep Michael Myers coming back or they have to go back and they have to reboot or they have to go back and they have to say all right like all of these don't count but this one does um Yeah, you don't get that with Friday the 13th because it does not make sense. You can resurrect Jason however many times and in however many ways that you like. And it's fine because that's how this series works. It doesn't have to make sense. Uh, It doesn't have to be reasonable. You can say the end of every single one of these movies is a dream. And that's fine because that's Friday the 13th. And we just accept that that you know it's gonna do weird twisty things especially right at the very end to get that like subconscious jump scare that maybe doesn't necessarily make sense like in the overall like course of things but it works because that's what the movie needs like it needs that last jump scare moment they have to find a way of doing it when it seems like everything is fine and it seems like the bad guy is dead they they got to have you know that that happen and you can only make you can only make that like reasonable like one or two times after that it's just not going to make sense and friday the 13th just kind of goes with it and that's what i love about it
1: and can i just say that this is and and speaking as somebody who's not only a filmmaker but also, you know, somebody who writes really obnoxious opinion pieces about franchises um, and that I hate continuity issues. Um, I don't know when audiences are going to be seeing or hearing this particular interview, but um, I screamed fuck you at the Mandalorian last week <laughs> so hard
2: it was during the,
1: the Ahsoka Tano episode because of the plot holes that were introduced by the fan service of that character's appearance, that I literally forced my Disney Plus app to stop streaming and my television to stop responding to my remote. I used my feelings and my Mm -hmm. feelings shut my whole house down basically. (laughs) So the thing is, what I'm trying to say is I am somebody who is a continuity nerd It's a big thing that I write about. It's a big thing that is important to me in franchises. Friday the 13th is the only franchise in any genre, horror or otherwise, it is the only franchise wherein I am not only okay with the continuity discrepancies, but I think it makes the movies more interesting because if it didn't have all of that for us to talk about We would simply be talking about what is essentially um, studio-released mainstream commercial porn. You have scenes that are set up to tantalize and titillate with whatever story is there simply to set up whatever the next sexy kill scene that ends with a money shot. And then we go to the next one and the next one and the next one. It's just violence porn, um, and yet Friday the Thirteenth, like any good pre-Gonzo pornography, um, tries to give you a bare bones plot setup. You know, the plumber comes over to fix the pipes and fucks the girl, or whatever. You know, it gives us this paper thin scenario, but it's it's a paper thin scenario that is continuing and yet is always constantly contradicting itself. And so you are forced to intellectualize it to a degree in a way that you don't have to with Freddy Krueger or with Indiana Jones or with anything else.
0: All right, so Megan, did you see part three in 3D?
2: Yes, I did actually. Um, Eric has a copy of the movie in 3D and we got the glasses. I still have some of them around my house, and he has <laughs> at his house uh we hundred percent watched Friday the thirteenth three in three d and it was lovely
0: was it a, do you think it's just a cheap gimmick, or do you think it helped it out? Yes, it's absolutely <laughs> a gimmick. I
2: give it- Anytime 3D becomes a major part of a movie, it's a cheap gimmick. Uh, when you have your actors like slinging yo-yos at the camera <laughs> or like bubbling up into the camera uh, and you're just going around asking your actors, hey, what can you do that we can use with these cool 3D cameras? Yeah, it's 100% a gimmick. Um, and it's, it's kind of a gimmick that got butts in the seats. So, I mean, I guess it works. This is probably one of, this is probably... Friday the 13th part three is like one of my least favorite in the early phase of, of Friday the 13th, um, but it's still a lot of fun um, and it's, you know, just it's, it's stupid, um, but these are all stupid and I sort of feel like this one embraces, you know, the stupidity of Friday the 13th in a way that really works.
0: Agreed. I think yeah. When, when you watch it without the 3D, though, it just it takes away from it. I think because you're just like, oh, like with the eyeball on. The, you know, what I'm saying the stab to the head. It's, and it's just fun. and it, you're just watching, going, okay. Obviously, this was all just done for 3D, and it just takes out. It takes away from it. I think.
2: Yeah, with the 3D, it's fun and it's cheesy and it feels like a throwback and it feels fun. Without the 3D. It just feels kind of like, eh, okay, why am I here? Because um, it's not that interesting of a movie without the 3D. It's, oh. it's kind of fun to see these like stupid things that they're doing in order to, to utilize the 3D camera.
1: I do want to say, though, that the two times you've seen that movie, you've seen it with me. And in both cases, I showed you the 3D version. That was not available for a very, very long time until you know the advent of dvd prior to that those of us who are of that generation um unless we were old enough to see it during its original theatrical run we grew up watching it on vhs or when usa up all night would show it all the time and thus we never saw it in its true 3d just like it's impossible to watch the Hobbit movies right now, um, you know, in 3D at 48 frames per second, the way they were intended. That is for theatrical presentation only. And Friday the 13th, 3D is as a consequence. It is a movie that, and I'm going to talk about the technical specs for just a moment. At that time, in order to be able to shoot that way and come up with those two layers that created the three dimensions, You had to over light everything. So when you watch the film now, you will notice that it is the first film where it looks like the woods at night are right in the middle of a football stadium. Like everything is blown out really, really hot. Secondly, as a consequence of them shooting in 3D, in order for them at that time to take the stereoscopic image and create a 2D version for VHS and television, um, you have a film that is not only really, really overlit, but also grainier and softer focus than the previous two installments. So you watch it in 2D, even um, you know on a Blu-ray at 1080 and the movie looks smudgy and messy. It's a bad, bad, ugly-looking film. But again, in 1982, nobody was thinking about whether people 38 laters, 38 years later were going to be discussing this. It was meant simply to make a shitload of money that Paramount could then put into good films. So, you know, it is a film that unfortunately is really really hideous at this point and is almost only watchable i think in 3d at which point it's you know a purple mess but at least it's a purple mess that has you know the distinction of these images you know that are literally eyeball popping
0: yeah i didn't i didn't get the seat in 3d until the like that first box set i think in the early 2000s yes so up until that point the thousands of times that I've seen it before were just 2D VHS or TV quality.
1: <laughs> and that's another thing that's really important is that I'm like you, in that, you know, I'm old enough that I remember the TV spots for the film, but I didn't, I, I was too young to see it in the theater. And nonetheless, I watched it a thousand times like you did on home video or on television. But the thing that was kind of a mind scrambler if you did not know that it came out in 3d in that pre-internet age of the 1980s and the 90s then you would have no idea because the film on um, you know the film's vhs cover said nothing about 3d it had a it did, you know a silhouette stabbing a knife through a shower curtain at the you know toward the the box holder but we do not know without context that that's because the film was 3d um you have a movie that for no reason at all without that context has credits that are flying out towards you ripping off superman the 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 movie and then you know flying away um you've suddenly got people who are just Shoving shit in front of the camera for absolutely no reason. Posing for way too long with a baseball bat. Yo-yos. Popcorn popping at the screen. (laughs) No goddamn reason for this at all. Um, And it's almost, I think, more fun to watch Friday the 13th part 3D in 2D because of how stupid all of that shit looks now. It's just, it's so ridiculous. It's such a garish, ugly, overlit, messy-looking image filled with people just doing dumb stuff, juggling for no reason so that we can get overhead shots of apples flying towards us. Why? It doesn't matter. But it's funnier that way.
0: Yeah, and I'm pretty sure, like, all of the death scenes were 3D tricks you know getting when he shoots the girl with the harpoon right like i said the uh where the, was it a poker like a fire poker that gets stabbed to the head with the eyeball on the other end oh,
2: oh. The, the thing with the eyeball is jason actually like crushes uh the boyfriend's head oh, that's
0: what it was yeah. rick rick yes
2: rick and just, yeah rick. And, oh god rick by the way is <laughs> at least this 40-year-old man who's like hanging out with these 17-year-old kids it's amazing um and then there is the boy who uh is doing a handstand walk down the hallway so that, love
1: it um, love it
2: slam his machete down between his legs whoa
1: okay so i got a question um megan i think you're the person to answer this who is the biggest incel in friday the 13th part 3d Is it Rick who is pressuring a girl with PTSD who had some sexual trauma to bone him? Is it Shelly, the practical joker, who thinks that because he and Vera had a minor bonding experience by running over a biker's motorcycle, that he is entitled to sex now? or is it jason who in his one and only example of sexual deviancy maybe raped the final girl who is the biggest incel and then and then of course he maybe raped her and then feels that he must kill every other woman
2: yeah Um, This is a really excellent question because there is a lot of really disgusting male behavior in this particular movie. I'm inclined to say Rick, but that's just because I really don't like him. There's this like idea that, I mean, the idea that Jason raped a young woman is sort of like very against, I think the concept of the character as presented in the previous two movies where you basically have a childlike man. And I think that that sort of continues in every movie after this so that implication in this movie is definitely an outlier um which makes me i guess not be as grossed out by it because it sort of feels like incorrect if that makes sense um and shelly to a certain extent like he's a younger man he's still still figuring his stuff out he's being horrible and abhorrent and obnoxious but there's also this sense of insecurity and this opportunity that maybe he's going to grow out of it. Rick is just an old dude hitting on a young woman who, like, really does not need an old dude hitting on her. And it's gross. He should know better. Yeah,
0: that's something that we brought up on our uh, Sleepaway Camp episode, which was back in the 80s. That was a big thing that it was in a lot of these movies. <laughs> the older male going after the younger preteen or <laughs> barely preteen uh female
1: well take a look at the the very opening of the film we've got the world's most disgusting can kin- you know roadside store owner and he's i mean he's so disgusting that when he goes to use his outhouse and take a shit after he has just been eating food off the, the the shelves that he is then resealing and selling, he goes and he takes a horrible shit, doesn't wipe his ass. <laughs> All right, he does not wipe his ass, and um, this is the first of two scenes.
2: Yeah, there's a lot of using the bathroom and not wiping in this movie.
1: In this particular movie, And that's not even getting to demon in part five. No. W- wearing his uh his 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 tight leather, but. We got this, this old, disgusting dude taking this messy shit and has, what is the relationship that he's got with the woman with curling, uh, you know, g- curling hair rollers um, who's living in that, you know, house and running that store with him? It's suggested that no, that's his wife,
2: married, yeah.
1: except she's young enough to be his daughter. What's yes, that all harder, about?
2: It's harder to see when it's filmed in 3D. When you see it in 2D, she's very clearly very young and he's very clearly not. Um yeah, so it's there's a lot of weird <laughs> weird relationship stuff happening in this. But one.
1: she's but she's meant to look like she's younger. And while we're on the subject of looks, so Jason moments after He is taken down by Ginny at the end of part two. He's all of a sudden mysteriously, you know, he's back on his feet and he's just fully functioning as if nothing had happened. He does, however, go to that convenience store and he steals clothes off the the clothing lines. So now he's got he's got this shirt and he's got these these trousers and it's it's kind of weird the way that he looks but he's got these clothes right and he is though very strangely heavier his build is totally changed and yes we realize that outside of the movie it's a different actor playing yeah. it's <laughs> it's Richard Brooker who was a you know a trapeze artist but the point is in movie. He is gone from being this kind of slight guy, a little gangly, to being a much heavier dude, a much broader dude, and he's back to being completely bald. Right. So (laughs) if indeed the end of part two did happen, he has shaved his head. After he left that shack, I guess he feels he has to hide. Um He's not doing anything about this you know, deformed face that he's got, which is kind of the giveaway. I'm, I'm like, Jason, that's like some Clark Kent putting on glasses shit, you know? <laughs> um, do something about the mug first. But he's now completely bald. But when Chris, who was maybe raped or molested by Jason a year earlier, has her flashback, Jason is completely bald as he is throughout this entire film. And strangely wearing the clothes that he steals at the beginning of
2: this film. (laughs) Look, Jason is like Taylor Swift or Madonna. He has to be constantly reinventing himself. He was trying out a look and he decided that he liked it. And so he went with it.
0: See, I never got, I never understood that part of why they put him possibly, you know, the sexual assault. I never understood why they put that in there. To me, that still doesn't make any sense at all.
1: I think again, this is something where the ambiguity makes it more interesting. It, the fact that Chris tells this story and that she was trying to escape from this attack, and then blacks out and wakes up in her bed the next morning, and her parents pretend it never happened. They ref- they they pretend it did never happen. So. And then we never address it again in the film. She confronts Jason. She sees him. She recognizes his face and says, you, and, you know, he even pulls his hockey mask up to make sure that she sees his face. And that is a very creepy, creepy little, you know, bit of filmmaking right there. But the fact that we never address or come to any definitive conclusion what happened in, you know, during that night makes it more interesting
2: it's a very strange detail and it's definitely one that over the course of the series as a whole um feels very strange but it feels very strange even just with the first two movies it's yeah
0: because he never never does it again you know what i'm saying he, we don't know if he's done it before obviously we know him as just killing everyone right <laughs> not killing some people raping the other people so it's just like, okay, this one time he does it, that seems kind of weird to me.
1: <laughs> we could also make the argument, though, that if this was a year before, that perhaps Jason was a a, a diddler. Uh, I mean, if, if we look at Friday the 13th, particularly if we look at the first one, what's so interesting about the forms of death are that so many of them involve uh, penetration and, you know, impalations and, and things of that sort. And we can make all kinds of Freudian arguments about knives and things being phallic symbols. But what makes them so interesting in that first movie is that it is a woman, Mrs. Voorhees, who is adopting male characteristics. She has a mannish haircut. She has this big baggy sweater that gives her a mannish build. She has hairy knuckles, for Christ's sake. Mm-hmm. And she's running around stabbing people and impaling them and essentially acting like a man um if we are going to say that jason did molest this girl perhaps that was something that he did maybe he wasn't a killer if we start looking at this continuity and trying to make sense of it maybe he didn't kill before maybe he did sexually assault women. And for whatever reason, because we don't know what happened at the end of that night, maybe whatever happened that night uh, led him to stop doing it. And he began instead of you know, acting out in sexualized ways, um, whatever occurred that night caused him to start acting out his sexual fantasies in those uh, phallic ways with weapons.
0: Maybe he died in part two and this is a totally different person here. They're just mistaking for Jason.
1: This is also true. Maybe maybe the death that he experiences in part two um, killed his libido. We don't know what he did with all those bodies before he hung them up. We do know that he selected certain people to take back to his shack and leave at the altar of his mommy's head. Um, And they are, if memory serves, all women. So that's very interesting. Maybe he has a type and right. he takes them back home and makes use of them later on.
0: Yeah, and there's something we can touch on when we get to the remake also, because that left some questions with me too. But Friday 13th, like- the final chapter. Eric, I know this has one of your favorite death scenes. It the guy being killed in the basement. We had talked <laughs> about it on your first episode with us. <laughs> He's
1: killing me. He's yeah. killing me. <laughs> i i would say part four is part four is interesting because um if we if we look at it part two three and four form a trilogy and with the exception of the the sort of prologue the 15 minute prologue in part two um they all take place over a couple of days and if we really want to sit there and either psychoanalyze or try to draft up some kind of a timeline of when shit's happening we literally watch hair and clothing fashion change um like annually over the course of a couple of days those kids in 1981 you know they always sort of say that a decade needs a few years to figure out what it is and it's carrying a lot of the baggage from the previous decade 81 looks very little like 82 that we see in part three, which looks very little like the 84 that we see in part four. So it's very interesting to watch that transition, but I do very much like the fact that Jason, um, you know, he's got the continuity of the ax wound in his, uh, in his mask. He doesn't look, like he did in part three. Of course he doesn't look in part three like he did in part two and doesn't look a whole lot like he did in part one. Um, So that continuity keeps changing. I would be very interested in knowing how you two interpret um, this guy who up to now we are being told was a normal guy who did not drown, was living like a hermit and perhaps is so driven by rage that he refuses sort of to die, you know, like he refuses um, certain wounds to take him down. But he takes an ax to the head at the end of part three. That's about as definitive as it gets. (laughs) He's taken to the morgue. He's put inside that locker. We get that little bit of breath, right, as the, the locker door closes. But what is it that happens then is he reanimated does axel and that nurse those two fucking around does that bring him back to life was he not dead was he dead how does he get up at the beginning of part four and start his rampage again
2: this is this is the constant question i feel like of these movies is how is this happening um because there's not a good reason uh other than just like the the, the the movies almost require you to kind of shrug and go, okay, I guess that didn't kill him, the axe in the head. Like maybe it just hit the exact right spot that, you know, he's he's able to shrug it off and carry on. Either that or he's just at this point, he or he has always been merely an avenging spirit.
0: I would say, I mean, I would say that just for it to make sense, he would have to be a ghost or like you said some kind of spirit uh or zombie if you want to go the zombie route i just i don't and i think it's just the only reason we're talking about it is because they just needed to keep bringing they need to keep making more movies (laughs) and And speaking of
1: speaking of making movies i mean i'm I, i think that you know the biggest The biggest compliment, I I think I wrote an article for Antiqual News where I said that the biggest compliment that you can give this movie is that it actually looks like a movie. It's the first one that looks like there is, you know, some money. There's some budget going on there. You know, right at the very beginning, look at the end of part three. There's like two cops there where dead Jason is lying in the barn. And the beginning of part four, we got a helicopter with a searchlight and you got all these extras and these, this choreographed sequence as we move through the crowd toward the barn. And it's, it's really a different looking film. And that's Joseph Zito who directed the Prowler that Tom Savini did effects for. Um, He really gave this movie polish and A lot of people feel that part four is the best one. I'm going to say that I think part four is the best made. It's also the best cast of all of them because you've got actors who either, you know, came out of this to do things or, you know, came into it having recently done things. This is like, you know, you got Crispin Glover, obviously. This is the year before Back to the Future. You've got Lawrence Monison from The Last American Virgin, um, Peter Barton from Hell Night and the, uh, the the Powers of Matthew Starr. You've got Judy Aronson who would be in Weird Science the next year. You've got Corey fucking Feldman in that heartbeat before the Goonies. I mean, this is, this is a real movie in ways that the previous ones were not. Um, I, I think it's I think it's spectacular. It's definitely the best made of the group. and you've also got some really cool plot elements that are going on there. I think it's the first one that becomes what we would consider the quintessential Friday the thirteenth formula like if you if if you were going to say to somebody, I was like, if you're going to show people one Friday the thirteenth movie and say, this is like the best Friday the 13th, you show them part two. But if you wanna show them one Friday the 13th movie that sort of encapsulates what the entire series is, that's part four. The formula is completely nailed down and perfected in this movie. Um, It's the first one where the kids sort of start taking on unique characteristics you feel like they're all friends, but they, you know, kind of have their own little cliques within the story and different personality types. Um, it's it's just so well made that in a lot of ways the the dumb shit feels dumber for it. And I think the greatest missed opportunity is the fact that you know we we were talking about the. Um, Oh, the actor's name, I think, was Eric, Eric Eric Anderson. He plays Rick. I think it's Rick, the 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 hunter character, and mm-hmm. he's hunting Jason because Rick Jason
2: boyfriend from the last movie.
1: Yes, but is he not? Is that not the name of the character in the Final Chapter? Here, I'm going to go on IMDb and I'm going to find out right now um, the character that eric anderson plays is rob i'm sorry okay there's another (laughs) one syllable r name but you know he they've got this awesome plot point of there is a character who is actively hunting jason that is very cool they do nothing with it first Mm -hmm. of all because (laughs) he is immediately killed um, in a way that I still all these years later I can't decide whether he's killing me he's killing me is either really silly and dumb or really Epic. creepy yeah like really creepy that awareness. He's Jason's not like sneaking up and killing somebody in a second he's hacking this dude apart against a wall and he's conscious he's aware that it's happening and he's screaming but he's not just screaming noise he's screaming about what his experience is in that moment it's just so bad that he doesn't really have anything to do and that his sister Sandra from part two died like three days ago and he's been out there like roughing it and backpacking for you know three days it doesn't make a lot of sense but it's a very cool plot point that um i think could have been made a lot better if they'd simply not connected it to part two and just said it was some other victim from several years before
0: yeah i had that that like because we talked about before that that death scene was comparable to the way i was re uh affected by the death scene in American Werewolf in London when Jack is being killed by the werewolf. Yeah. Aware of it and screaming, this thing is killing me and help me. And I was just like, oh, that's so creepy.
1: <laughs> and we don't get that a lot. We don't get a lot of verbal victims in horror films. Right. You know? And so the thing with, with Rob is interesting because what he says is so weird, it's so weird that, you know, again, it's either... It Maybe one of our reactions is to laugh at what he's saying because the implication is so horrible that we kind of almost have to laugh because otherwise the alternative is to, you know, really have to wrap our brains around what it would be like to be conscious and aware as someone is doing to you what we are seeing happen to him.
0: All right. Um, Another good thing about this one is this was the return of Tom Savini doing some, he's uncredited, so I'm assuming he just kind of uh, supervised, but the uh, special effects in this movie were really good. And I think it's, he probably brought what he learned on the Romero films with him when he done this one.
2: There's a lot of great great stuff as far as effects in this movie and i cannot stop going on and on every time eric and i watch it um there's a stunt woman in this movie and that's number one rare for horror movies that you actually get a stunt woman rather than a stunt man dressing as a woman and she flies out of windows multiple times lands on the ground lands on cars in a way that is just completely elegant and beautifully done. And it's one, of, it's one of my favorite things in the movie is the fact that there's a stunt woman and she's doing top-notch work. It's beautiful.
1: Yeah, much better than the stunt woman in part seven who goes out the window and has those big, thick, hairy legs <laughs> yeah. because she's a stunt dude. But now, that's, that's part uh, seven. Part seven's its own ball of wax.
0: Yeah. You had mentioned that the uh, in part two when she puts the sweater on pretends to be the mom you said that was probably the greatest thing ever what about uh tommy jarvis shaving his head and pretend to be a young jason confronting the older jason
2: (laughs) it's it's kind of cool but it also feels a little bit if it it's just it feels a little bit contrived um for me anyway you know, they this the, this kid and the fact that he's making you know these masks and stuff that would you know they're movie sort of like level masks. It feels a little bit self referential and a little bit self conscious. And so well, his I, name
1: is Tommy after yeah. Tom Savini. So uh,
2: <laughs> and and so that that's just personally how I feel about it. Um, and then you're also asking a kid to sort of you know do this like psychological trickery and he's great at it, but I don't feel like it works as well as what happened in part two, just because you have an adult woman who's sort of like, you know, playing it with, I think a little bit more conviction, just because of experience.
1: I'm going to argue that I agree. Part two does it much, much better. Um, and it's also the first time that you see it. It's it's part of the reason why the chair jump at the end of part two it doesn't work for me for a lot of reasons but one of them is that it's telegraphed we know that they're just going to repeat what they did in part one um having tommy confront jason uh as he does at the end of the film both works and doesn't work it's definitely not part two but i think this is another instance where you know the writer barney cohen along with with you know Joe Zito were just going, okay, well, we need something to happen here. So let's look at the other ones. Okay, let's do that. It, it, that worked at the end of part two. We're basically just going to do that over again. And they didn't give it a lot of thought. Yeah. But because they didn't give it a lot of thought, it creates this weird, vague uh, area there in which we are left to in making you know our own interpretations. So Tommy comes down the stairs. He calls Jason's name. Jason turns and is looking at a pop-collared version of his younger self. <laughs> yeah. And you know, it's like and and that stops Jason in his tracks. And all he can do is stare. And Tommy keeps saying, "Remember, Jason. Remember. What is going on there?" we see some sort of connection is going on there and Jason is seeing something, remembering something, feeling something, but we don't know what it is because Jason cannot emote behind that mask and he does not speak. And Tommy seems to be referring to something specific. Is he just saying, remember when you were a kid? Is he saying, remember when you were alive? Remember when you were a good person? Remember, what is he saying? Remember when you died? What is he trying to evoke there? And it's so vague and unexplained that it becomes, I think, especially when coupled with Manfredini's score, a very creepy moment because there is a connection. And it, the movie wants there to be a connection between them because it's almost like there's a transference that is happening. Tommy has physically turned himself into young Jason. And now he is having this staring contest essentially with Jason who's moving in toward the boy and Tommy ends up hacking Jason to bits. And then we get the, you know, the big bullshit moment at the very end where he opens his eyes and looks at the camera and we are meant to go, oh, this is part four, the final chapter but it's just the final <laughs> chapter of the Jason Voorhees story. Next, there will be the Tommy story and he's going to be the killer in the next film. There is something that's happening there and we can either say that it is an emotional transference, it is a metaphysical transference, a psychic transference, or uh, a commercially minded, um, creatively bankrupt transference. Whatever it is, it's vague And I think it's very cool for that reason.
0: Yes. Yeah. The final chapter should should have been the last one, but it wasn't.
2: There's a reason though, that Tommy Jarvis comes back for like two more movies long enough to scream me again. Uh, (laughs) He's, he's definitely, you know, is set up as having this, this connection and potentially going on to becoming another killer. It's, it's sort of the point of part five,
1: which does not happen starting yeah. in part five. I, I do want to say before before we, we talk about the way that they just completely threw out that whole plot thread when they went into part five, I do very much wish that they had left the original ending in the film that was not uh, viewable until, you know, the era of special features in which Trish has a nightmare where she, it's the next morning, Jason is dead, the rampage is over, the sun is up and there is dripping coming from the ceiling and she goes upstairs. And the mother who we saw post Jarvis sandwich um, react to something outside of the house that we never see. But there's the implication that she is killed. But we never find out what happened to her. Well, in this deleted scene, Trish goes upstairs and there is her dead mother in the bathtub, drowned, and slowly sits up, and she opens her eyes, and, you know, they're completely Reagan McNeiled, um, rolled back into her head, and again, we're looking at this, and we're going, okay, duh, Tommy Jarvis has physically turned himself into Jason, he becomes a killer at the end of the movie, and kills Jason, and what is a big motivating factor? His mother was murdered By Jason. So I, I wish that that had stayed in. And I do also think while we're talking about the mom, there is a great moment that, again, is so vague because the mother is barely there as a character. She's there to go running with her daughter around the lake. She's there to give Jarvis sandwiches. And that's about it but there's a wonderful moment when the kids next door arrive and they're hooting and hollering and running inside of the rental house to go get drunk and stoned and laid. And we see mom looking out the window at them with this expression that can be read as those kids are going to cause problems and fuck with my kids. Right. And it feels very Mrs. Voorhees, and yeah. I, I I love that moment.
0: Yeah, that was a very good one. Um, we covered a lot on this, one. I think we may have to wrap this one up, and maybe get you guys to come back to finish up the series. Uh, it's getting later, <laughs> late, later than I imagined it was going to be. <laughs> but there's a lot <laughs> to talk about. There's a lot no, no,
1: about. there is. Let's do a part two of this. We can, Absolutely, we can, we'll do a part
0: two, but that'll be our final chapter.
1: Yes. Uh, yes. <laughs> Except I'm for back. then when we do part three, um Carrie goes to hell, the the final episode.
0: That's what we'll do. Yeah. And then we And have then we'll a, and we'll, and then we'll do, do part
1: part four, which will be called Vickers X or something like that. <laughs> <Yeah>.
0: <laughs> and then eventually we'll go to space.
1: Yes, that's the
0: X. <laughs> yeah, okay, here we go.
1: And then we'll do Eric versus Carrie. Um or something like that. Well, yeah, go. we'll figure it out. We'll figure it
0: out. And then we got to go to Manhattan, but we'll spend the majority of the time on the boat. Yes.
2: Actually in Canada.
0: Yes. yes. That's what we'll do. It
1: takes, it takes Vancouver. <laughs>
0: yeah. All right. So, Megan, where yes. can everybody find uh, your book and find you on the internet?
1: Well, wait, before she does her plugs, okay. can we rank the first four what we, since we've covered oh, the yeah, first four? Oh, yeah, yeah. What, what is our ranking?
0: Go ahead, Megan, rank.
2: Uh, one. Two, four, and three. That's that's them in order of, of best to worst, in my opinion.
1: That's a good ranking.
0: Okay, mine is going to be two, four, one, and then three.
1: Also a good ranking. For me, it's two over one by, like, you know, a machete blade mm-hmm. Um, but two then one then four then three and it's weird that none of us said four was our favorite because there are people out there what is the great debate it's either part two or part four or part right. six those are the ones that everybody argue about being the best
0: yeah, that's why everybody has their own opinion I guess <laughs> no one's correct right
2: Except Eric is always okay, correct. Okay, he's
0: always correct. Okay.
1: <laughs> she said it so I don't have to.
0: <laughs> yeah.
2: All
0: right, so Megan, go ahead yeah. and plug away with uh, your stuff there.
2: So uh, you can find my book, The Altered Wake, on Amazon and on uh, Clickworks Press, uh, Barnes & Noble, all the usual places Uh, If you buy it and you read it and you like it, please leave a reading because I'm up to like 10 or 11 of them on Amazon and I'd always love to have more. Uh, Also, I have a podcast called Cocktails and Cookbooks that comes out like uh, once a month at this juncture, Uh, depending on when I have time is 100% and also how often Eric can pester me into getting an episode done uh and yeah i'm on facebook at megan morgan and yeah all the other places
1: all right uh eric uh eric christopher myers you can find the two features that i wrote and directed streaming for free on prime or you can support the dying physical media Um, and by a Blu-ray. The first movie is called Roulette and it's available on Prime. As I said, my most recent film and the one that most people are aware of is called, it's the back cover, Butterfly Kisses. And uh, if you're very interested in learning more about the lore of the movie Butterfly Kisses and also read some of the lovely Megan Morgan's writing, uh, there is a tie-in book called In the Blink of an Eye that is all about butterfly kisses and the uh, fake lore included. I also write for Ain't It Cool News and typically I'm writing on the subjects of franchise history and genre theory. So go figure if you've been listening to me. rant about all the stuff, then you can go read me rant about all these things. And as I have said repeatedly throughout this episode, and I'm just going to say it again, without joking, in all seriousness, um, leave this show a good rating, maybe even leave a review, definitely share on the social media and do that for all the podcasts that you are enjoying 2020 has been a year that has been horrible. And one of the things that has gotten all of us through it um, is listening to podcasts, watching movies that are streaming for free on prime, all of those sort of things that have allowed our minds and our souls to get through what we've all needed to get through. So whether it is this show, a different show that you listen to Megan's books, Megan's podcast, my films, whatever else, reviews, ratings, sharing on the social media, that is what pushes the algorithms and gets all of this content out to new audiences. So please support independent artists who are giving you great content.
0: All right, and again, thank both of you guys for coming on here. Uh, It's always fun having you guys on. Mm -hmm. Um, Megan, this is on your second episode, but I'm pretty sure you'll be back for our part two of this. And then, of course, I'm also planning a, I guess we're going to call it a year in review, not although there's not much to talk about with this year, but uh, both of you are more welcome to come back for that one.
1: Always. Thank you for having me back repeatedly, and I'm so glad that you've added Megan to the mix.
0: Oh, mm-hmm. yeah, no problem. And you can find me on Twitter, I'm on 1313 uh, Inc., and of course, our uh we have the Facebook groups and pages and there's just too much for me to keep up with, but there's stuff all over the internet with it. We got Instagram and we have a T public store. And if everybody can uh, go purchase t-shirts or hoodies or anything like that, really help us out. And uh, until next week, we will continue to watch the good, the bad, and the cheaply made.